welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. A few housekeeping points before we begin. Every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced. So people, verses, hadith, etc. They're all in the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com. Most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few. But when you listen to longer form episodes, the notes are meant to be a resource and an aid. Number two. I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday I send out a short email called Coexist Ruminations that shares what I'm working on and reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. If you have ever spent time studying any of the Islamic sciences, one of the patterns that becomes clear is the attention scholars in the past gave to documenting principles, axioms, rules, aphorisms, etc. In almost every discipline, you will find these catalogued, all with the aim of making the study of that particular discipline easy. So, rather than always having to start with a minutia and then making sense of it, students typically learn these principles which provide important frameworks to make sense of it all. Now, while these principles are usually for students and experts of these fields, I believe that many Muslims seeking to make sense of Islam require their own set of first principles through which they can approach Islam as a religion and discipline of study and also draw conclusions that are both at one with the fundamentals of the faith and also compatible with our current condition. In this series, and at this point, I'm not exactly sure how long it's going to be, but I will say at least 10 episodes. I want to highlight some of these first principles that help us create a mental framework through which we can make sense of Islam today. Enjoy. So one of the principles that is important for us to keep in mind as we approach Islam in general is the importance of the Arabic language itself. So today I want to speak a little bit about Arabic and why it's special and, and what does it mean that it's one of the principles uh, that we need to keep in mind. Of course, the Qur'an is the language of, of the Qur'an and of the Sunnah. So the, the Qur'an is, was revealed in the Arabic language. And then the Prophet ﷺ spoke Arabic, so therefore the hadith, of course, uh, is in the Arabic language. And because of that, it is considered uh, the holy language of Islam. It's the language of the primary text. Now, the reason that language is important is that language is also, also transmit culture. And language is one of the phenomena of, of our species that we can communicate w with each other in, in an articulate language. So when we talk with each other, or we communicate with each other, or when we write to each other, we are also communicating something beyond just the words. We are communicating emotions, we are communicating feelings, we are communicating a larger idea, and this is what we mean by culture. So culture is carried through language. One of the things that carries culture is language. And the importance of culture and thought is that if our language is correct, then we will also think correctly. And if we think cor correctly, 
then we will be able to access essentially an unlimited amount of creativity. So correct language leads to correct thinking, leads to unlimited creativity in, in any language group. So if you articulate yourself, you know, people that are very smart, when you say, oh, this person's very smart, or this is a visionary, or something like that, more often than not, you will, be, you will find that they are very clear in their thinking, and therefore very clear in their articulation. So a, a recent example, you know, somebody sort of from my generation that a lot of people, you know, we, we look up to f for secular reasons. If you ever uh, hear a, a clip of Steve Jobs, talk about something, a new product, or just talk about marketing, or any of his thoughts. He is unbelievably clear in the way he talks, in the way he articulates, in the words that he uses. His, when he speaks, you're, that's it, you're convinced. That feeling of the listener being convinced is because the person that is speaking is very clear in their articulation, in their thought, and therefore in their language. If you're not clear in your language, and you're fumbling about, then you're not going to pass on the meaning. I remember I had to, in grad school, I had to study German. <laughs> so I had to speak, you know, or practice with the teacher. My, my, German, my spoken German was, was pitiful. You know, my, my pronunciation was awful and my vocabulary was very limited. And therefore, I could not communicate ideas. I could just communicate, you know, I have three kids or I have a wife and yes, no. I mean, that's all I could say, right? Because my language was limited. So the reason why language and specifically the Arabic language is important for us even if we're not native Arabic speakers is that it's the way that we can access the real understanding or the real meaning of our primary sources the Quran and the Sunnah and therefore learning that Arabic is also important for us to be able to articulate as a global community what our ideas are about what these texts say however language is one of those things that is impossible to encompass entirely. Imam Shafi'i in the Risala, in his famous book, the Risala, he says that it's impossible for anybody but a prophet to encompass all of language. So it's it's never ending. So this is not it's not like you can take course one, course two, course three, and then you're going to be done with it. This is a never ending process. The the depths and the nuances is, is never ending. So we need to acknowledge that, that language also changes, and, and we're going to get into that. But to go back to what I said in the beginning about uh, Arabic being a holy language for us, there are other holy languages, right? There is the language of the Vedas, the Sanskrit language. So that's also a holy language for the Hindu world or for the Dharmic world. Uh, there is the Hebrew of the Torah and of the, of the Jewish sources. So the Hebrew is a holy language for Jews. There is uh, the, the Greek dialect, most likely that Christ spoke, alayhi salam, slash the Aramaic, which is the original language of the Gospels. But then that gets translated into, into Latin uh, through what is called the Vulgate Bible. So that becomes, therefore, Latin becomes the major language of liturgy for, for the Western Christian church. And other, you know, uh, Coptic, for Coptic Christians, Christ Coptic language is, a, is a, holy a holy language, so on and so forth. So these languages are holy because from them come these texts. It does not mean that the language is intrinsically sacred. It means that the 
texts that these languages were written in or revealed in has we call them holy language for that reason but language changes and evolves and new vocabulary is added and uh, as culture evolves and and culture moves forward through time so does does language but to make that make that clear if you look at the quran as a text there are about 66000 words in the quran and in the arabic language most of the words of the Arabic language come from what we call a trilateral root. So most words come from a root that is made up of three letters. Most words. Some, some words have a four-letter root and very rarely there's a five-letter root. But let's just say, f to make things simple, that the, the majority of the words in the Arabic language, they stem from a three-letter root. So if you look at the roots that those 66,000 words come from in the Qur'an, it's 1,810 roots. So that's the language of the Qur'an, that the Qur'an utilizes about 1,800 roots of the Arabic language. Now when you go to the Sunnah, if you, if you make the same type of analysis of the Sunnah, we have almost double that, 3,600 roots that make up the corpus of the language of the Prophet wasallam. And the 1800 roots of the Qur'an are also amongst the 3600 roots of the Sunnah. So that, therefore our primary texts, from a linguistic point of view, encompass 3600 roots of the Arabic language. But how does that compare with the Arabic language in general? How many roots are there in the Arabic language? There's about 40,000 roots. Meaning that the Qur'an and the Sunnah make up just 10% of the possibility of the Arabic language. So when we speak about Arabic as a first principle vis-a-vis -vis Islam, vis-a-vis -vis understanding the Qur'an and Sunnah, we're talking about that 10%, which means that 90% of the Arabic language is that part of language that evolves with time and with culture. And so it's not sacred, right, because language evolves, but it's a sacred language in the sense that the Qur'an was revealed in the Arabic language. Now 10% of the Arabic language is used for the language of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. If you know 10% of a language, of, of any language, you will have a great deal of proficiency in being able to speak and communicate in that language. And this is why Islam and Arabic spread in, you know, after the first couple centuries of Islam, really throughout the world. And it became the lingua franca of the known world. Trade, commerce, politics, thought, literature, poetry, it was all in the Arabic language. And most of those people that were speaking Arabic were non-Arabs. Uh, people from the subcontinent. Uh, people from the, uh, for, you know, Indonesia, Malay, those areas. Uh, today, you know, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, all of these people speak even the script of Urdu, the script of uh, Ottoman, uh, Turkish, the script of Farsi, it's all written in the Arabic script, right? So Arabic have this huge impact on the major part of the Muslim world because the Qur'an's language, being Arabic, utilizes a significant amount of the Arabic language for the point of view of, of fluency, which is that 10%. So if you knew 10% of Spanish, you'd be able to converse. You, know, you could get by, which is why Muslims 
you know, when they get together, even like, you know, today when they get together, places like Hajj and things like that, they can communicate using quote-unquote Quranic Arabic. You know, it's, it's not full communication, but we can relate to each other because we have this, you know, in common with one another. So this is one of the historical impacts of the importance of the Arabic language. But coming back to the language itself, I want to go back to these roots and talk a little bit and give you an, a couple of examples of why, what the significance is of the Arabic language for us to understand the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So let's take a root of Mim, Lam, Kaf, Malaka, okay? And from these three roots, we can have Al-Malik, the king. Or we can have Malak or Malaika, angels. We can have Malik, an owner. So the philosophy behind the Arabic language is that all of the derivatives of this root somehow share some common meaning together. So what is, the, what is in common between the king, the angel, and ownership? So the idea is that these things share some kind of strength or power. The king, we can understand that, that a king has power, worldly power. And we can understand that ownership, if I own something, then it's mine, meaning it's not yours, meaning I can do with it what I want. So ownership has strength. So therefore, the angel also must be an entity that has strength. So when the Qur'an talks about, or when we read about, for example, the Battle of Badr, that the angels came and fought with uh, the Prophet ﷺ. Or when you read the verses in the Qur'an that the angels guard the doors of heaven and guard the doors of hellfire, if you were an Arab at the time of the revelation of the Qur'an and you heard that word, you would understand that the angel is something awesome and powerful and very strong. Not, you know, like the fluffy, uh, chubby child with a halo. Like that maybe we think of in the Western tradition. You know, angels are like cute little like uh, babies, right? But in, 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 in the Arabic language, as we understand it from the... Uh, deriving the meaning from the language, from the root itself, know that the angel is something therefore strong. So you read, for example, when Gabriel manifests himself to the Prophet ﷺ in his true form, the Prophet ﷺ said that he could not see anything in the horizon except Gabriel. So when Gabriel manifested in his true nature, his true angelic nature, he filled up everything and he had over 600 wings. So the Arabs like, yes, because that's the right name for that type of being because the letters of Mim, Lam, and Kaf indicate strength. Now, if you took those same letters and you reverse them, some of the reversals, they make up like a nonsense word. But some of them have a meaning as well. So for example, if you flip them around, you get Kalima or Kalam, words, language. So, you know, we, even in English, we say the pen is mightier than the sword. So language is very strong. You can curse somebody, you can fight with somebody, you can start a war by just, you know, saying some, the wrong thing. Or you 
get married simply by articulating some kind of language. You say, I offer this, and then the woman says, I accept, you're married. Or a business transaction. All of the transactions in Islam, their basis is speech. The, the writing of the contract is simply an affirmation of what is said. So therefore, language is something that is very strong. And if you flip the letters again, you get lakima, which is to punch. Well, that's clear. We can understand that. If you punch somebody, that's, you know, that's physical strength. So part of the way we approach, and I understand that this is very advanced for us that are not experts in the Arabic language, but it's important that we know this. Because when people present us with a, uh, a type of interpretation of Islam that doesn't make sense, we need to pause and we need to go back to these principles. That's why we're, we're doing the, the principles together. So part of the way that you understand the meaning of these words in the Qur'an, in the Sunnah, is you want to understand well, what does this root really mean? So another, this was like a simple example, but a more complex example would be, for example, when people today talk about jihad. And they talk about, you know, Islam is a, is a, a war-thirsty religion and, and holy war and uh, Allahu Akbar is like the call to war and all of that nonsense and Islamophobic stuff that we hear. How can we begin for ourselves, first and foremost, how can we make sense of what jihad really means? Well, we also need to understand it linguistically. Jahada, you know, what does that mean? What does that type of root means? You know, there's a very beautiful hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ, he said, the best form of charity is jahd al-muqil. And he uses this word, the jim, the ha, and the dal, jahada. Jahd al-muqil, the struggle, the jihad of the person that doesn't have anything. That's the best form of charity. So this hadith, the best form of charity is the effort of the person that doesn't have. Jahdul muqil. Meaning, if I only have $10 in my pocket, or I only have $10 period, and I give $5, I have given half my wealth. That's jahdul muqil. I mean, the person that only has 10 bucks is not the person that's going to give charity. But if you do that, then that's like you have ultimate trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But if I have a job and I have a steady form of income and my wife works and I work and will dual income house and I give five bucks, that's not jahd al-muqil. Or I give a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars, that's not jahd al-muqil. Because that's easy, quote unquote easy, because I know that I can make it up again. So when the Prophet says this hadith, right, and he uses the word jahd, we must take this and bring it back to the conversation about jihad. Because they're related, because it's the same word. When Allah Ta'ala talks in the Qur'an about your parents, وَإِنْ You know, if they fight with you to commit shirk, don't obey them. But obey them in everything else. جَاهَدَاكَ So they struggle with you. Does this mean that, you know, they take a machine gun and they point? No, of course that's not what the verse means. It means that they're pushing you, they're putting pressure on you. So when I have only 10 bucks, I put pressure on myself and I, you know, I give the money out. So it's almost like jihad is to, to conquer an inclination that goes the other way. So one can almost conclude that war is something that's disliked in Islam. And you would be correct. Because the Allah Ta'ala, when He addresses the fighting, He tells the Prophet in the Qur'an, 
you know, fighting has been prescribed to you, but you dislike it. But, some, but maybe you don't like something that's good for you. Meaning that the Prophet ﷺ had to stand in, in, in physical defense of the nation. And he had to do it or else they would have perished. But who wants to stand and fight and you know, have to face battle and things like that? So when you, when you bring the language part of how we interpret, then a whole host of things, a whole host of meanings emerges. And then we add to the conversation all of the hadith, and all of the verses that talk about what we refer to as jihad al-nafs. You know, the jihad against our lower self. That's also jihad, right? We also talk about that. The Prophet ﷺ said in a sahih hadith, and the hadith is sahih, we have returned from the small jihad to the greater jihad. And they said, what's that, Ya Rasulullah? He said, the jihad of the person against themselves. Oh, he was very explicit. He even used the word here, jihad. So that's jihad... Your parents fighting with you to disbelieve is jihad, a use of the word. Uh, giving charity when you don't have, that's a form of jihad. So it's not just putting all the texts together, but it's also what does that word actually mean? By looking at its root and looking at the, uh, the meaning that binds all of those derivatives together. Another example, and we can, we, I'll, I'll, we can close with this is that sometimes Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will declare something in the Qur'an or the Prophet will declare something without defining it. So, um, Are they equal those that know and those that don't know? But know what? So we find in, in another, this is moving away from the, the roots and the meanings of the roots, we find another use of language as a principle, as a first principle, that some things are open-ended. So therefore, anybody that knows any amount of something is better than somebody that doesn't know anything at all. That's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying. He's not saying you have to know this and this and this and this, and you have to know this much of this subject and this much of that subject. He's just saying, is, are they equal somebody who knows anything? Versus somebody who doesn't know anything? No, they're not equal. It's a rhetorical statement. So the person that's educated is refined more than the person that doesn't know. Now, of course, the person that's educated that doesn't have also, you know, deen education, they can go astray. That's also true. So, you know, you want to be complete. But people that are educated, people that are literate, people that are educated are very different than people that are not. I remember, because we were speaking today about Mauritania, on that trip to Mauritania, we had, we had to, everybody that was with us wanted us to go to their house in their village, and they wanted us to stay for like a week, and you know, they wanted to slaughter all these animals for us to eat. It was like a festival, and we had to try to get out of it because you know, we have a schedule. But I remember one of the villages that we went to, we, we went to somebody's house, and there was a, a group of, of children, you know, young people, before, you know, teenage years. And all of the children except one, they, ha they were only studying and memorizing Qur'an and Arabic and Sharia sciences. Only one of them went to a, a quote-unquote school, meaning that that one student, he studied like the others, the Qur'an and things like that, but he also went to a quote-unquote secular school. And that one young man was completely different as you would expect, than all of the other kids. He was more articulate 
he was more confident. Uh, he was more well put together. And he was really the only one that we were able to sustain a conversation with. The other kids, you know, all they have studied for their like, you know, the first 12, 13 years of their life was only Quran memorization and Arabic, you know, traditional Arabic studies and things like that. No, no geography, you know, no arithmetic, things like that. So here, you, you see this verse manifest. This child is different than the other ones. Now the other kids, they might know more Quran than him. The other kids, they might know more Arabic than him. But this kid, he knows more things than the other children. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us, the point is when He gives us something that's open-ended, it means that it's undefined. It could, you can, we can define it several ways. So on and so forth. In conclusion, if we understand the importance of language and the importance of understanding the primary texts also from its linguistic point of view, then our understanding of what is meant by the text will be more accurate versus people, you know, extremists and terrorists and all of these people in the name of Islam that draw wrong conclusions because they're not thinking about these things. They're level of, they're selective in what they read, they're selective in the interpretations that they use. They don't understand the depth of the language, that some of their conclusions are just against the linguistic meanings altogether. And oftentimes they misread texts just from a grammar point of view. And therefore they draw the wrong type of conclusion. So for us here, what does this mean? We should all make some kind of effort to learn some kind of Arabic. No, ma no matter how little or how much, it doesn't matter. But a Muslim's responsibility is to know something of the Arabic language. It could be just being able to recite like the Fatiha, it could be able to read the letters or whatever the case may be. But this is something that belongs to us, it's part of our tradition, it's part of our heritage, all of us, whether we're Arab or non-Arab. And in this case, I would even say that Arabs have more of a challenge than non-Arabs because the Arabs today, their dialect influences in a negative way oftentimes the understanding of the Arabic language. But if you don't know Arabic and you study uh, Quranic Arabic or Islamic Arabic, let's say, it'll be easier for you because that's all you know about Arabic. You don't have to worry when you go with your family or you, know, you watch your native uh, you know, shows and movies and you, you won't get mixed up. So, I, so people that are not native Arabic speakers should not think that they have a disadvantage. And don't forget that Sibawe, who is the you know, father of the Arabic language, was non-Arab. Sibawe is a non-Arab name. And his book, which was essentially the first book written in Islam, is called Al-Kitab, the book. And it's a book of grammar. And all of the great grammarians, many of them were non-Arabs. So this is not, it's not an ethnic thing, this is a Muslim thing that we should take it upon ourselves to access as much of the Arabic language as we can. And as I said in the beginning, it will, no matter how much you do, you'll never be able to get it all. So th the point is to keep doing it, not to arrive at some goal. Wallahu <laughs>